So chapter 16 is where we are this morning, and chapter 16 is one story with two scenes. The two scenes are, um, in verses 1 through 6, the focus of that scene, that first scene, is Abram and Sarai, and their continuing journey of childlessness, and what they do in a moment of their faith being tested. And then the second scene picks up in verse 7 as the focus shifts from Adam, from Abram and Sarai to Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, her Egyptian servant, uh, the runaway from Abram and Sarah and how God pursues after her. So let's read the entire chapter and then dive in. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, And gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old, and when Hagar, when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather as a church family this morning. We thank you so much for this time and this place and this space for us to worship you. We pray above anything and everything else, Lord, that that is what, is, what happens this morning that you are honored as king, 
that you are glorified as our sovereign Lord, for that is what you are. And so, Father, we pray that you would cause us to bow in admiration of you, in adoration of you. Um, and, Father, may we, may we see in your words more reason to worship you, more we- reason to extol your glories. And, Father, would you teach us this morning from your word? Father, I pray for every one of my brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, you know right where they are. You know what they're going through. You know the, the, the journey that they're on. You know what's happening in their life. More than I do, more than their family does even, more than perhaps even they know. You see them. You are the God who sees. And you are the God who hears. And we thank you for that. So Father, we pray that you would take your word this morning and drive it deep into the souls of every person in this room. My brothers and sisters who know you, Father, may you, may you use it for that purpose that will meet them right in the middle of their journey. Father, those that are here this morning that are investigating the claims of Christ, may you, may you make your gospel truth clear to them this morning through your word. Father, I submit myself to you as, as a humble servant this morning. Lord, I, I pray that your word takes center stage and that you would just speak to your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's two scenes here, 1 through 6 and 7 through 16. And the setting of the scene is introduced for us in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So immediately we're introduced to the three characters in these two scenes of the story. There's Sarai, there's Sarai's husband, Abram, and there is Sarai's uh, servant, literally a maidservant, who is from Egypt and her name is Hagar. Now, Abram and Sarai have been the two main characters in this story ever since chapter 12 when God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Sarah both came out of Ur of the Chaldeans and came to Canaan. And when he got there, God made promises to Abram, promises of offspring. He promises to make Abram into a great nation and that that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he includes a promise of land as well. I will give you this land. And in the previous verse to this one, chapter 15, that we just finished up a couple of weeks ago, God had reiterated these promises to Abram in two very powerful visions. The, The first vision that God used to to reiterate these promises was that God took him outside at night, took Abram outside at night and said, "Look look at the heavens, Abram, and count the stars if you're able to count them. And of course, he was away from any lights at that point. And he looked up in the, if you've ever been to that place out away from the city where you see countless stars, that's what it was like for Abram. And God said, count the stars, Abram, if you're able to count them. And he says, so shall your offspring be. It's a powerful, powerful vision for him. 
And then, and then it says, Moses tells us that, that Abraham believed God in that promise. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The faith of Abraham was counted to him as righteousness before God. But then there was a second vision, and it was even more powerful than the first, where there was this formal cutting of the covenant. When God tells Abram to go out and, and get the animals and cut them in half and put them in two rows, and then God shows up in the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch that passes through the two halves of the animals, signifying that God was passing through the pieces, saying, Abram, I, I am promising, I am going to keep my promises to you, promises of offspring, promises of land. I'm going to keep these promises And may it be done to me, as he passes through the pieces, God is saying to Abram, may it be done to me as was done to these animals if I do not keep my promises to you. A very powerful vision and and image for Abram. A mountaintop experience, if you will, back in chapter 15. And right after that mountaintop experience, now we see him in chapter 16. And what often follows mountaintop experiences, which is the valley of trial, the valley of testing. That's just where he is in chapter 16. So we see immediately after this setting a trial of faith for Abraham. And that trial of faith for him is simply waiting on God to keep his promises. That's what it is for him. It is waiting on God and waiting in the way in which God tells him to wait for God to do that which he promised to do. And isn't that what all tests of our faith boil down to? Waiting on God. Waiting on God, trusting in God to keep his promises. Whether it's, whether it's waiting on Jesus to return or, or, or waiting on him to, to bring to completion our salvation, waiting on him to give us victory over a sin, or waiting on him to work out all things for, his, for our good and his glory. We're all waiting on God. We're waiting on God to keep his promise, to, to do that which he promised to do for us, and to wait in the manner in which he tells us to wait, doing things his Way, But the waiting is the trial. The waiting is the trial. And it has been for Abram already. He's been in this trial many times in this Genesis account. He's had this test of faith many times already. And with varying degrees of obedience. His first test of faith was when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Would would he trust this this foreign God? Would he trust this Yahweh to truly lead him away from his family and his home and his father's house to a land that God was going to show him? Did he trust God in that? Well, kind of. Right? I mean, he was kind of halfway faithful. He He went to Haran. And he, and he took, took his father with him, and they stayed in Haran for a while, but, but then he left his father. And he, and he ventured out, and he followed Yahweh, and trusted God to take him to Canaan. Then after he got into Canaan, there was another test, right? 
There's famine in the land. Would he trust God to provide? Would he wait on God to keep his promise? No, he wouldn't. He fled down to Egypt where there was plenty of food to try to take care of things himself. He takes matters into his own, own hands and he goes down to Egypt and he fails that test of faith. Then when they're down in Egypt, there's another test of faith down there. Would he, would he obey the Lord and not lie about Sarai, his wife, being his wife? Would he trust God in that? No, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. He lies about that. He tells Pharaoh that she was his sister, and that got him into all kinds of trouble down there in Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh says, go back. Go back to Canaan. Leave, please. And so when he gets back, he's got another problem. There's not space for him. Pharaoh sent him out with all these servants and all these belongings and all, these, all this livestock. And there's, not, there's not room for both him and his nephew Lot in that land. And so he's got to trust God. Is, 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 is he going to trust that God would provide for him in the land? And the Lord does. And Abram is able, able to settle in Canaan, in the promised land. But his nephew Lot settles in the cities of the valley. Not long after that, there's another test of faith. Because Lot, in the cities of the valley, he gets kidnapped by this invading army from the east, Ketelomer and his, his allies. So they take Lot away. They kidnap Lot. Now would, God, would, would, would Abram trust God to provide for him in this and, and trust that God would come through for him? And he does. And Abram wins that battle. But no sooner did he win that battle, and he's coming back from the battle, he's presented with another test of faith when the king of Sodom comes before him and, and offers him the spoils of war. Would Abram trust God in this point? Would he, would he pass this test of faith? And he does. He rejects the spoils of war, something that Abram knew would cloud his objectivity and potentially lead him into an unwise alliance with the king of Sodom. And so he rejects the spoils of war, and he passes that test of faith. And then, then we have the two visions that we just talked about in chapter 15, these mountaintop experiences. And then what happens next, chapter 16, another trial of faith, another test of faith. Does it sound at all like your life? Does it sound at all like your life? From one test of faith for another. This is often how it goes for us. There are ups and there are downs and there are mountaintop experiences. But what often follows the mountaintop experiences are these valleys of trial and these valleys of testing. A.W. Pink once said, it is God's usual pattern to bless and then to test. It is God's usual pattern in Scripture to, to bless his people and then to test his people. And we see that in our lives as well. There's blessing and then, and then there comes testing, the, the trial of faith, the test of faith. So what was the nature of Abram's test here? Well, first of all, it was twofold, but first of all, it was Sarah's barrenness. Moses tells us in verse 1, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now, how do you think Sarah felt about this? I would imagine that she was at least disappointed. She was upset. 
She was grieving. She was sad. She may be wondering, what's wrong with me? Perhaps she feels hopeless. It's never going to change. It'll never happen. From verse 3 later, we learn that it had been 10 years since they had come into Canaan. And we were told back then when, when they first came into Canaan that Abram was 75 years old. Now he's 85 years old. Later in chapter 17, we'll learn that Abram is 10 years older than his wife, Sarai. And so if Abram is now 85, his wife is now 75. And Abram says to Abram, Sarah says to Abram in verse 2, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. It's almost like it's, it's a conclusion. It's done. He's prevented me. I'm barren, and I'm well beyond the natural age of childbearing. But she recognized that it was the Lord who did this. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She recognizes this is the Lord's doing, and it is. Sarah recognizes the sovereign hand of God here. And she recognizes that, that both she has been both blessed and burdened by God. That both blessing and trial come from the hand of providence. Consider her blessing. She was blessed in a number of ways. She was a very beautiful woman. So beautiful that at the age of 65, Abram has to lie to the Egyptians. Oh, no, no, she's not my wife. She's just my sister so that they won't kill him because she's already taken. She's a knockout at 65. She's wealthy. She has a godly husband. By the way, a godly husband who was also a great warrior and defeated the invading army. A husband who's a man of integrity. She was blessed in many ways. But she was also barren. She was childless. Both come from the hand of God. The promise of children had come when she was 65. Now it's 10 years later. And she's still barren. She's still waiting, waiting on God to keep his promises. God had not opened her her womb. It would be yet another 15 years before he would. So here they are, now 10 years in this land, 10 years after the promise, still waiting. Still waiting on God to keep his promises. And why? Why is Sarai barren? Why is she still barren? barren why does God promise children to them and then wait 25 years to make it happen why the delay why 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 her barrenness why does Abram have a wife who is so far beyond childbearing years why why doesn't he just say Abram go go find a young one who's who's still because I I have this promise to fulfill to you I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You're going to have a son, Abram. Why her barrenness? It is because God wanted everyone. Abram, Sarah, 
their servants, the Israelites in the Sinai Desert who are hearing this story from Moses hundreds of years later, and he wants us reading about it in 2019. God wants all of us to be completely convinced and 100% sure that there is absolutely no way for Sarah to have a child so that the Lord would display his glory and his power and his might through the miracle of life in her. So that he would show himself to be, as Paul says in Romans 4, 17, the one who gives life to the dead and the one who calls into being things which do not exist. This is God's intention to display his glory and his power. And what we need to remember, church, is that this God who, who promised to bring the child of promise to Abram and Sarah also promised that from his seed would come one who would crush the head of Satan. The, the, the messianic promise. The, the promise of the anointed son of God who would come and, and sacrifice himself on the cross so that those who put their faith in him might be forgiven and reconciled back to God and restored to right relationship with him. And this miracle-working God raised Jesus from the dead and promises that all who trust in his death and his burial and his resurrection as sufficient price for their sins will be forgiven. And then he further promises to return and bring us home and, and make all things new and, and, and restore everything. And the God who makes all of these promises to us is the God who made Sarah barren, is the God who made her childless, not for a year, not for five years, not for 10 years, not for 15 years, but for 25 years after the promise, childless and barren, so that we would see his glory and his power and his might in the miracle of life and see his promise-keeping power in the most desperate and the most hopeless of circumstances so that we would see that the impossible is possible with this God. So I don't know where you are. I don't know what challenge you're facing, but God displays himself in this miracle so that you would see that nothing is impossible for God. And that if he made a promise, he will keep it, not by our plans and, and way that do, we devise plans to, to try to work our ways out of situations, as we'll see, but through trusting in God and waiting on God to keep his promises. But for now... For Abram, this is a test of faith. In spite of her barrenness, in spite of her age, would he trust in God? Would he wait on God to simply keep his promises? But this trial of faith for Abram wasn't just because of Sarai's barrenness. This 
test of faith was also because of Sarah's bad counsel, Sarah's bad advice that she gives to Abram. So Sarah isn't content here in this story with waiting on God to bring her a child. And so like Abraham did back in chapter 12 with the journey down to Egypt, she takes matters into her own hands. She comes up with her own plan. So she's got this Egyptian servant, this maidservant, Hagar. She probably was given to Abram and Sarah when they were down in Egypt. When Pharaoh's like, take the servants, take the livestock, just get out. You've given me leprosy because of what you've done. Just, just leave. That's probably where they got Hagar. And Hagar was Sarah's servant, not Abram's. She was literally a maidservant. She did Sarah's bidding, not Abram's. And so Sarai sees herself as hopelessly barren. And then she sees her maidservant, Hagar. And she devises a plan of her own construction. Verse 7, excuse me, verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now what we need to see here is that this was wrong. This was wrong of Sarah. It was culturally acceptable. It was acceptable according to societal norms of the day. But it was wrong. It was morally wrong, and it was a violation of God's command. God had made it very clear in the garden what his definition of marriage was. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what was God's plan for marriage? One man, one woman, one flesh for life. That was God's definition of marriage. Now, for 10 years, they've been living in Canaan. And they've been living among the Canaanites. And they've been living in a land where the societal norms were not according to God's ways. They had been living among a pagan people, a people who worshiped idols. And this had begun to infiltrate their thinking. Now, the Canaanites would not have had any problem with Sarah's plan. That was culturally acceptable. It was acceptable according to societal norms to, to offer your maidservant as a surrogate in, in the case of infertility. And by doing so, you would protect the, the wife would protect herself from the shame of divorce because the husband, according to the laws of the day, could divorce her for not giving her a child, giving him a child. And so it was culturally acceptable, but it was a violation of Yahweh's standard of marriage. And so before we go any further, we, we need to understand Sarah was wrong in this. She was violating God's command. She was wrong in her plan to give Hagar to her husband. But Abram was wrong as well. Because as it says at the end of verse 2, he listened to the voice of Sarai instead of listening to the voice of God. Now, if we go back to chapter 15, the previous chapter, Abram, too, had come up with an alternative plan to take matters into his own hands. He knew that God had promised offspring, and so he came up with a plan for himself to get offspring. He's like, I don't have any offspring of my own. I think it's hopeless. There's no way for me to have my own heir, and so I'll make Eliezer my servant, my heir. 
Again, it was culturally acceptable according to the laws of the day to do that. If you didn't have any children to cause to, to, to make your servant, one of your servants, your own heir. So that was, that was culturally acceptable, but it was not God's plan. And we're told in verse 4 of chapter 15 that the word of the Lord came to Abram. The voice of the Lord came to Abram and said, This man, Eliezer, your servant, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Literally one from your own loins. And Abram listened. He listened to the voice of God in chapter 15. But now he's listening to another voice. He's listening to the voice of his wife. Now, husbands, I want you to listen to me. It is good to listen to the voice of your wife, okay? Please don't hear me saying that you don't listen to the advice of your wife. I'm just exegeting the text here, okay? Listen to your wife. But when her advice, or we could flip it around, when his advice, wives, when the advice of your spouse goes against the clear teaching of Scripture, do not listen to it. But Abram does. We're told at the end of verse 2, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Verse 3, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went went into Hagar, and she conceived. I think it's uncanny how the language of this story so aligns with the language that we see In the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, there Eve saw the fruit, that it was good to eat. She took it, she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he partook. Same thing's happening here. She took her servant Hagar, gave to her husband, and he partook as well. This was sin for both of them. This was, was, was not what God had planned. They had both violated God's clear teaching about what marriage is, and they had both failed the test of faithfulness. The test of faith had been failed on their part, both of them. They didn't trust God. They weren't waiting on God to keep his promises. They stopped waiting. And they decided to take matters into their own hands and do things their own way. A couple of things that we can learn from this. One is that no matter how acceptable something is in culture, cultural and societal norms must be weighed against God's word. I think it's interesting that for Abram and Sarai, they were being inundated from their culture about the definition of marriage. And isn't that the same thing that we're faced with as a 2019 today as well what our our societal uh, society says about marriage doesn't line up with what God's word is we must always weigh that whether it's marriage or or societal norms about sexuality or gender or even things like how we spend our time And what kind of entertainment we allow for ourselves and for our families. 
whether or not we just blindly accept technology and just accept whatever comes our way. Cultural and societal norms must be weighed against God's word. And we can't just accept them blindly. The second thing that we learn from this is that clearly the end doesn't justify the means. I think, I think Abram and Sarai's heart here, I think their motive was to help God. It was to help God out. They, they both knew about the promises to Abram. They, they, they both knew about the promise of offspring and that there was something earth-shattering, something world-transforming that was going to happen through Abram's progeny. So he had to have a child. He, he, he had to have a son. They wanted this amazing, awesome plan of Yahweh's to be fulfilled. And so they're going to do whatever they can to make sure that Abram has a child. And Abram's going to try through Eliezer, his servant, and Sarah's going to try through Hagar, her, her maidservant. Their, the, the, their end was to see Abram have a son so that God's promise would be fulfilled. But the means by which they pursued that end compromised God's standards. And the end never justifies the means. It didn't then and it doesn't now. So sadly, Abram and Sarai both fail this test of faith here. And, and once again, once again, we see ourselves in Abram. He's called Father Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. Father of those who are children of God by faith. He is epitomized in Romans chapter for his faith. And yet it falters. Oddly, we should be warned by that and we should be encouraged by that. But they fail. They fail this test of faith. And what's the result? What is the fruit of their faithlessness? Look, beginning in verse 4, consider the fruit of Abram and Sarah's faithlessness. First of all, the first result, the first fruit, is the broken relationship between Sarah and Hagar. Look at verse 4, the end of verse 4, says, And when she saw, this is Hagar, when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she's pregnant now, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So after she conceives, Hagar looks with contempt on Sarai. Literally, she, she is despised in her eyes. Hagar now felt that maybe she had an opportunity to usurp Sarah as the wife. Proverbs chapter 30 warns against this. Listen to Proverbs 30, verses 21 through 23. Solomon writes, under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, a fool when he is filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. So there's a very real danger for Sarai that she might be, be by Hagar. And apparently Hagar begins to see that potentially this is an opportunity for her to improve her station in life because she despises Sarah, she looks on her with contempt. But then Sarah gets her back. At the end of verse 6, the end of this scene, Sarah mistreats Hagar. It says, then Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. So Sarah mistreats Hagar enough to where Hagar flees. She runs away 
to flee that mistreatment. So there's brokenness between Sarah and Hagar, but then there's also brokenness between Sarah and her husband, Abram. When her maid is pregnant and despises her, what does she do? What does Sarah do? She blames her husband. Look at verse 5. Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. It's your fault, Abram. So what we have here is what we can call a marital discussion, right? (laughs) Have you ever had one of those marital discussions? Now, Abram certainly had his share of the blame here. But doesn't this just make you want to ask Sarah, girl, what did you think would happen? You gave your servant to your husband. She got pregnant. But still, she blames her husband for the response of Hagar. And John Calvin calls her response blind anger. Just lashing out to whatever's nearest. It's your fault, Abram. But her husband, how does he respond? He's passive. He he abandons his responsibility to spiritually lead and becomes passive in the marriage. What does he say when she complains to him? Verse 6, Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Kind of the J.G. Wentworth response, right? She's your servant. Do with her what you want to do, right? Nobody knows that reference to J.G. Wentworth. It's your money. I want it now. She's your servant. I don't know what got me there. But their faithlessness causes strife in the marriage. Causes, causes strife in the home. Blind anger, lashing out to whatever's nearest. Passivity on the part of the husband. Brokenness in the home. And then thirdly, it also causes brokenness with God. It negatively affects their relationship, not just with one another, but also with God. We see this at the end of verse 5, when Sarah says, May the Lord judge between you and me, talking to her husband. May the Lord judge between you and me. Who's wrong? And John Calvin says she is just calling down cursing on herself. Because if God were to judge who is in the wrong here, it would be both of them. So there are always consequences to us taking matters into our own hands and not waiting on God, not waiting on providence, and trusting Him and waiting in the way in which He calls us to wait for Him to keep His promises. When we take shortcuts, when we short-circuit that, when we take matters into our own hands, there are all kinds of consequences, and these are just a few of them. But then Moses takes a turn in chapter 16, and he goes on to the next scene, and he shifts the focus from Abram and Sarai, and shifts the focus now to Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. Hagar is mistreated by Sarah, and she flees, and she runs away. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, parenthetically here, we should ask, who is this angel of the Lord? Who is the angel of the Lord? Some, 
Some Bible scholars call the angel of the Lord here simply an angel, one of the messengers of God. That's what the word angel means. It means messenger. This is a messenger of God speaking God's words. Other Bible scholars say that this is the pre-incarnate Christ showing up as God to Hagar. Now, I don't think that we can be definitive here, but I do think a couple of things are noteworthy. First, we see the definite article there. This is not just a, an angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord. In some way, this angel of the Lord has prominence over other angels, because this is the angel of the Lord. Secondly, the way this angel of the Lord speaks to Hagar is quite a bit different than the way angels speak elsewhere in Scripture to people. He says to Hagar in verse 10, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. I would submit to you that doesn't sound like a messenger. Sounds like someone who says I'm going to do something. And angels don't multiply offspring. Only the Lord does that. Hagar herself, in verse 13, addresses this angel as God. Verse 13 says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing, El Roy. So I'm comfortable either way. I'm comfortable with either interpretation. Um, I'm comfortable with those who say this is a messenger of the Lord. This is an angel from God speaking God's words in the first person to Hagar. But I'm also comfortable, more comfortable, in fact, that this is, in fact, the pre-incarnate Christ. That this is Jesus showing up to Hagar and ministering to her and loving her and correcting her. But regardless, look, look at how God pursues Hagar. Now, what we need to see here, church, is that Hagar is suffering, she's hurting, but she's also in sin. She has also disobeyed God. She has rebelled here. It was wrong of her to run away from Abram and Sarah. She was Sarah's maidservant, and she had Abram's son in her womb. And it was wrong of her to leave. It was wrong of her to run away. Ethically, morally, wrong of her to flee. So how does God handle this? Now we flip forward to the New Testament and we know that with unbelievers, with those who reject God and reject the gospel, God will sometimes give them over to their sin. Right? We learned about this in in Romans chapter 1. He gave them over to the lusts of their flesh. He gave them over to their rebellion such that their judgment was just heaped on them. But not with unbelievers. God doesn't do that with his children, with those who have come to him in faith. With his children, God will let you get to a point. But there will be a limit. And there will be a point where he stops you. And he says, child, stop it. Stop. Don't go any further. Turn around. Come back to me. And that's what he does 
with Hagar. So what we see in this passage here is how God moves and acts to restore sinners like us back to himself. Those, those who call on the name of the Lord, who, how God restores us back to himself. First of all, we see that he humbles her. He, he reminds her of who she is. He doesn't call her Hagar, the wife of Abraham. He doesn't call her Hagar, mother of the chosen seed of promise. No, he calls her what she is. Hagar, servant of Sarai, because that's who she is. What has happened to her has not elevated her status in life. It hasn't elevated her status in the home. She's not the wife now. She's still the maidservant. So God humbles her. And we know that if if we are going to be restored to God, then it requires humility on our part. As James says in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's humbling and maybe even humiliating to be known for who we are, sinners undeserving of grace, but it's absolutely essential. Secondly, he makes her consider her sin. Here's here's where the conviction of sin happens. How does the angel of the Lord do this? He asks her two probing questions in verse 8. He says, where have you come from and where are you going? What are you doing, Hagar? Pause for just a moment here by the spring. Where are you going with this? Where'd you come from and where are you going? And of course, these are rhetorical questions. The, the angel of the Lord is not blind to where she came from and where she's going. He wants Hagar to see the truth of those things and to consider those questions. The Lord wants Hagar here to think about her sin, to to recognize her sin, and she does. And so she answers, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarah, which again was wrong of her, it was sinful of her. And often when the Lord is pursuing us in our sin and seeking to restore us to him, he asks us similar questions. Whether it is through the word of God as we read it and study it, or whether it is through brothers and sisters in Christ that we're in community with that ask us the probing questions, or whether it's just the still small voice of the Spirit in the quietness of our soul, the Lord says, what are you doing? Where are you going with this? What are your motives in saying that and thinking that and doing that? Is this honoring to the Lord, what do you think is going to happen if you continue in this? And these are little gems of grace from God to get us to see our sin. That's why God asks us these questions so that we would see our sin and, and, and confess our sin, which, which simply means to admit it, that it's sin and, and it's wrong. And then he leads us to repentance, to turn from that sin. And that's what he leads Hagar to next In verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And so he commands her to return and submit. Here the angel commands repentance. Stop going in this direction, Hagar. Stop going down that path. Stop. Turn around. 
Come back. Return to your mistress and submit to her. And friend, this is what the Lord tells us. Stop the sin, my child. Stop it. Stop it. And return to me. Repent and return to me and my ways. But then fourthly, he encourages her with promises. Look at verses 10 and 11. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. When the Lord is restoring us to him, after a, after a time of rebellion and sin, after our foray into disobedience, he brings conviction of sin where we recognize that he shows it to us. And then he commands us to stop and turn around and repent and return to faith in him. But then he also reminds us of the grand promises to those who come to him in faith. That their sins are forgiven. That they are counted righteous before God. Because of Jesus' righteousness credited to them by faith. That we are adoptive sons and daughters. That we have an eternal home with the Father. And that all things are being made new. And, And these promises build our faith in God. And they instruct us. And encourage us to faithful obedience to God. But the angel's promise to Hagar is that she will have a son. And that her offspring will be multiplied into a nation. And her son would be named Ishmael. The name Ishmael means the God who sees. Now let's consider for a moment Ishmael and his descendants. Who are the Ishmaelites and how do they figure into the Genesis story? Who are the multitudes that are promised to come from Hagar? We read about them a little bit more in verse 12. It says, He shall be a wild donkey of a man, which just refers to his fierce independence, his independent spirit. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, which refers to him being characterized by strife and tension with his, with his fellow man and neighbors. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Again, referring to the hostility that will characterize him with his kinsmen and fellow Canaanites. So who are these Ishmaelites? Well, in Genesis chapter 25, Moses lists for us the descendants of Ishmael. He says in verses 12 through 16, These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. If you follow these names in Scripture, these Ishmaelites are the ones who settle in Arabia. They are the first Arabs. In Genesis chapter 37, whenever the Lord wills, we will get there. Um, We'll see the Ishmaelites again 
as Joseph's brothers sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. And they're, they're leading this caravan through the Arabian desert and they, uh, they are sold Joseph and they take him down to Egypt and sell him as a slave. According to Islamic writings, the prophet Muhammad, the Islamic prophet Muhammad was a descendant of Ishmael. In fact, all of the first Arabian Muslims were known to have descended from Ishmael and these 12 princes here. So the Ishmaelites are very closely connected to the first Arabs and the first Arab Muslims. So how does God move and act to restore sinners here? He humbles us. He cuts us down to size. He opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, so he humbles us. And then he shows us our sin. There it is in our life. It's unavoidable. And then he commands us to repent, to stop and turn around and come back to him. And then he encourages us with the promises of the glories of our salvation. And how does Hagar respond? I would submit to you that how she responds here can be characterized as worship. She names the Lord. Isn't that interesting? A servant from Egypt who is a maidservant for Abram and Sarah is the only woman in Scripture who names the Lord. And what does she name him? Verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Literally the Hebrew El Roy, the God who sees. For she said, truly I have seen him who looks after me. And therefore the well there by the spring was called Bir Lahai Roy. And it lies with Kadesh and Bered. She calls the Lord, the God who sees. He sees me in my hurting. He sees me in my suffering. And he sees me in my sin. And he is the God who hears Ishmael, her son. His name, God hears. And God sees. So we should probably ask ourselves, are we caught in a pattern of sin? If so, then we need to allow the Lord to do this in our life, to humble us, cut us down to size for who we are, and allow the Lord to show us that sin, to reveal it to us through the Spirit. And then to respond to His leading, to repent and come back to Him. And then rest and the promises that he has forgiven us in Christ. And then respond in worship. Respond in gratefulness and thankfulness for what he has done for us in Christ. Let's pray.